Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji, and this is episode 56. Today, I welcome the founder and CEO of Hubba.com, Ben Zifkin. Enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. So you graduate from University of Western Ontario mm-hmm. with a philosophy major. Yep. Is that is that just so that you could go there to drink? <laughs> or like, what's the story? I see the look there? on your face. Um, no, you know what? I was on my way to law school. Um, so that was my initial plan was to go to law school. My father is a lawyer. I always watched. Uh, I always watched him as a lawyer, and used to go to his office all the time. I thought it was a really cool profession, and that was my 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 path in life. So I thought. Started off actually in political science, thought philosophy was interesting. I was not a really great student, and uh, philosophy seemed to be a good one for me. I was able to go through uh, with minimal effort, and uh, took my LSATs and was on my way to law school. And then in my second year of university, luckily, uh, I got a computer. So that changed everything. But it was it was law school was the initial direction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, did you teach yourself about programming when you like? What, well, let me ask you this. Sure. People always like to talk about their first computer. What do you remember? Oh like, yeah. The mo- what was the yeah, model? Yeah, it was an NEC something sixty eight sixty NX or whatever it was. It was a this gray brick, but it looked really really cool. Yeah. Yeah. My friend got one, and I got the exact same one after. It was pretty cool, and it ran ICQ really really well. And that was awesome. That's all I needed. Nice. Yeah. And did you teach yourself programming or did you? Yeah. You know, it's um, somebody showed me that view source, right? You go on the browser, you check view source, and all of a sudden you saw the code behind it. Yeah. And that was really cool to me. And maybe it was the philosophy piece, you know, the logic and just how everything hung together. And uh, all of a sudden I took that source code and changed something. Actually, I put a bold, you know, bold uh, tag before and bold tag ending tag after. And all of a sudden it changed it. And I was like, wow, I can build something. That's pretty cool. And I could impact that universe a little bit. So that's how it started. And I just started playing around a little bit. And it was interesting to me. What was the first thing you, you remember developing uh, or building? Websites. So just yeah. websites for people. So... Um, I started off just changing existing websites and playing around with it and showing how it actually worked uh, and learning bit by bit. Um, started learning how to teach myself by searching on the internet and getting involved in forums. And then um, I started building websites for people. Uh, first, it was non-existent people and just saying, hey, that's a really cool company and like, let's see what I can build for them. Really? Yeah. And then, uh, and then I started uh, doing things for like my father's clients, actually. A lot of them were retailers and other companies. And... I remember thinking that this internet thing was just not going away anywhere and maybe they should get on board this cool cool universe and did a whole bunch of proposals for them of how they te- they could uh, technologize their company a little bit better. And I remember sitting with him one day in a, in a restaurant and showing him one of these proposals. It was really, it was super ugly. I think it was like a black cover with like this re- horrible, horrible font and uh, like super techno- like technologically advanced for the time. Yeah. And he just looked at me. He's like, why are you going to law school? And I said, I don't know. And he said, you should do this. I'm like, cool. And that was the beginning And this is your dad it. telling you. Yeah, this is my dad who, 
you know, at the time had an office for me in his office, like waiting for me. Like that was always the plan. And, and, and it was one of the, it was obviously one of the best things. Listen, I like the, I like the profession of law. I think it's really cool. And I know it sounds kind of nerdy to say that I always had a lot of respect for it. And, uh, you know, running businesses, I do a lot of contracts, and I, I actually like that part. Yeah. But man, thank God I'm not a lawyer right now. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> I still wake up every day and, and and very grateful to my father for pointing me in that direction. Mm -hmm. Even though my mother, I'll give her credit, said it for probably the 20 years before my father did, but my father was the one who actually said, "Why would you do that?" And it made a lot more sense to me then. So you yeah. don't own a suit now, is what you're telling me. You know what? I just had to go away. I was just on a on a trip. Um, and it was for some other organizations I do stuff with, and uh, I was ready to go. I was away for three days. It was in uh, in Germany and France and Switzerland, and it was like this really great event. And at the end of it, I saw right before I was leaving, they said, you know, um, dress code is that you need to wear a suit and tie. And God, I like I went white. It was like three days before. I don't own anything anymore. I used to like love dressing up, but now obviously I, I care about how I look and I put together, but. I don't wear suits and yeah. I definitely don't wear ties and my body like physically rejected. I had rashes around my <laughs> neck and it was just an absolute, <clears throat> an absolute nightmare. So no, I don't, I do not own, a, own many suits right now. Wow. Yeah. So while you're building these websites mm -hmm. for your dad's clients, for, uh, for people's companies and they didn't even know that you were <laughs> yeah. build, building them websites, um, that was during university, or this is soon after. It was during university. Mm -hmm. um, was the most uh, was was mostly when I started doing it. My second and third year university. Okay. Um, and I started taking it more seriously after. Yeah. I, listen, I was a terrible developer. Um, there are people that it, there are people that are very well trained in this. I think the fact that I wasn't trained helped me a little bit. I just you know, okay. and actually the philosophy degree. People joke about the philosophy degree. The philosophy degree is a really great degree to have. It's very Logical mine was philosophy of science was the majority of what it, it was actually philosophy of science and religion, which wow. I'm, I'm not a very religious guy, but they actually go hand in hand a the philosophy piece and science uh, the science piece and the religious piece like mm -hmm. they all actually go together and and I, I was a terrible student. I went to like nine classes, I think, in three years at university. Since <laughs> then, I read all my books and I l actually enjoy my textbooks and I wish I would have uh, enjoyed it when I was in university. Um, but I started really um, questioning the way that people built things because I didn't wasn't a comp sci or a computer engineering major. Interesting. And uh, it seemed to work out really well for me. So I do like the philosophy side of things. So I did learn it myself. And then about my third year university, um, started thinking about what I would do after uh, if I wasn't going to go to law school. And uh, decided that I want to get more into technology. And really what I ended up doing was um, there was this program and it was a private school private schools were like the big thing at the time everybody went to like these like mine was iti the information yeah. technology institute and the main reason why i went to iti is because um we had this uh they had this joint thing with dalhousie and the, and what happened was um your degree that first year allowed you to um take off that first year of an MBA program. It was equivalent to a first year of MBA program. So you'd leave ITI and then go to Dalhousie and do your second year. And all of a sudden you had a technology degree and you had this MBA. And that was awesome. It was another shortcut. It was pretty, pretty cool for me. And I got this technology piece and went to ITI. Um, again, didn't learn a ton. Um, and as soon as I graduated, they canceled the program. So I didn't oh, even get man. to do the MBA piece of it. So um, that's kind of how I started getting into technology. And while I was there... I ended up um, getting recruited into the, my first startup that I worked with, a, a 
a startup here in Toronto, actually just literally two blocks down the road from us at, uh, it was the Toronto Opera uh, Company before, just down the road mm-hmm. on uh, Front Street. Uh, raised, they raised a bunch of money and were growing, and I was probably the 30th or 40th employee there, and that was the beginning of my startup and technology world. What was the name of that company? That was a company called Case Tech. Um, it was about 2000, 2001, great company, you know, uh, raised a bunch of money, was doing huge, big financial applications uh, for, like, big, you know, finance companies. And, and now is this just, is, now is this at the boom or just, because there was a, around it that was time period, right? just in the, it was both. The answer is it was It was both. like a boom and a bust that happened around 1999, yep, 2000. exactly. So, uh, so, you know, this company went through the typical piece of what grew really fast. We were about 400 people at one point, I believe. Wow. And then... Uh, shrunk considerably after that. I was fortunate that, um, you know, while I was there, I was a developer integrating with big backend systems, so 300 systems and changing things from like Fortran and COBOL and all these old, like terrible systems into the new cool one, which was Java. So I do these Java XML adapters and it was all awesome technology and fun system integration stuff. Um, But there were better developers than me. And what happened was one of the clients was like spitting out all the consultants down on site. Like they didn't like any of the people that were coming down from the company. It was a system integration done with IBM. The IBM people didn't like who we were sending down and it was a really t- tough, difficult job. So I kind of put my hand up and said, hey, I'll, I'll try that different role, which is more the consulting and on-site stuff, doing all the specifications and working with the clients. And everybody's like, no, 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 no. It's a difficult, tough like thing. Here's the company credit card. Like take everything you can. I went down there. I loved it. I had a blast. You know, I had nice. a really great... Great life, great opportunity down there. Lived, uh, you know, a few days a week, and it was in Red Bank. It was on the Jersey Shore with one of our customers. Okay. And then, you know, in Toronto, it would be, like, literally almost, like, $2,500 tickets because they needed refundable tickets. And, I don't know, I was 21, 22 at the time or whatever You're living the life. And I just said, you know what? Keep the money. Give me $2,000. I'll go into New York for the weekend. So I literally lived in New York with, like, this amazing stipend for a year and, uh, Saved the company money and basically got to live in a hotel for a, a long time down in New York. So perfect for a twenty-one-year-old. Oh man, it was it was amazing. I had a ton of friends that were down there at the time, and yeah, yeah, it was an amazing life. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got started in this world. Nice. And then, so you're you're a consultant at uh, Case Tech. Case Tech, yeah. Case Tech. And then from there, you, from there you go to Workbrain. Yeah, I got selected. Um, Workbrain was also a high growth company. Uh, yeah. There, Pretty early as well. Um, I was actually at a bachelor party uh, down in Vegas. And there were two <laughs> of the guys worked for this company called Workbrain. And they were talking so highly about it. And I actually really liked my job at, at Case Tech. And, uh, and they're the ones who convinced me to go try it out. And uh, at least have a couple of interviews. And really enjoyed the company and really liked it. And ended up uh, you know, taking a role at uh, one of the lead consultants on the services side implementing really big enterprise software for huge companies. What, what, what was WorkBrain's, like, what were they built to do? So their focus was workforce management. So okay. basically, historically, um, you know, the old clocks on the wall where you used to swipe in and swipe out the yeah, Fred yeah, Flintstone yeah. clock. So they really built technology around that to centralize that across massive, you know, hundreds of plants and thousands of people and do all the you know, real calculations and all the stuff that technology was cool back in, in 2000, mm-hmm. big enterprise software to take it off like the old legacy world and pull it back into proper management. It was, it was wonderful software and it was really ahead of its time at the, at the moment. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the problem was when you're enterprise software and you implement for enterprise software, 
you basically just make really bad things go faster in many cases unless you fix the business. <laughs> and, uh, and I would see that time and time again. We would just take bad processes and make them go faster. And I really thought there was an opportunity to, to fix that and basically go in and fix the business and then bring the technology to manage it and everything would work. And, uh, you know, WorkBrain was an amazing company. Those guys, it was probably the smartest group of people pulled together you know, in one organization that I've, that I've ever seen. Um, just the brain power. And you see that by a lot of the companies that have spun out of WorkBrain in the, in the, in the years. I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because I know, so Dan, is it Debo? Yeah, Dan Debo. Yep. Dan Debo, he was one of the, uh, one of the main guys. Yep. Uh, at WorkBrain. Yep. And, and when I, I remember there at one point in time, there was a bunch of names that kept on coming out of that company Tons. Yeah. that, like, oh, my God, this guy started this company and that company. Tons. It's and almost like a work brain mafia. Yep. Like there's, they call it the PayPal. Do there's mode. dozens. There's dozens. And, so who came, who came out of – who else came out of WorkBrain? Companies brain? like Ripple, uh, David Ossoff, who was the CEO, exited WorkBrain after they IPO'd and then were eventually acquired. He started a company called Dayforce. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or the company called Dayforce, which was acquired by Ceridian. Whoa. Merged with Ceridian, and now he runs Ceridian, which is a massive company, and he's done unbelievably well. Um, and there's probably about two dozen companies that have come, some system integration, like smaller service firms. Sure. DeBose company was Ripple, which was a software company. Yeah. Purchased and by Salesforce. By after. Salesforce, yeah. So, And there's probably, again, like, you know, there's a gentleman who is one of the founders called Ray Nunn, who runs kind of fleet management software now company. Wow. There's there's just there's a bunch of them. Um and WorkBrain was great. It was one of those situations where that's really where I cut my teeth, and they threw me into really difficult situations, surrounded by so many smart people and good people. They were all like this great caliber of people, um, and I didn't realize just the pace that like David Austin, the CEO, set, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was what happens in organizations when you have a job, and I did not realize that you can get to that gear. Like That was a sp very special gear that everybody was in, I just thought that's the way that the world worked. And when I got out of there, I realized how special that was. And, and learning on that kind of treadmill going that speed, and that's the way that I grew up, was uh, an amazing, amazing thing. And, and you know, there's lots of good things and lots of bad things about working for companies like that. But I always credit that company with being the reason why I've been able to use some of these really great things. I'm wondering if, it, if, if that culture has helped to incubate these other no, not incubating in terms of you know uh, what a lot of people think about you know business incubation um, or startups and things of that nature, but sort of to foster the mentality in in future founders. Yep. So David was great at that. So David, who's the CEO, it was just we we're just going to do it, right? Like that's yeah. just like why would you? Well, you get enough brain power, you get enough smart people. Like we'll just do it, and in that was probably very different at the time. You know, when you're thinking 2002, 2003, 2004, um, there weren't a ton of, like, there was no startup culture in Canada. And you're used to working for big companies, or, and all of a sudden, you go work for a guy who's, A, very inspiring, and B, just gives you that, meant, like, it's not even drinking the Kool-Aid. It's just, it just, that's the way it is. Like, of course we're going to do it. Yeah. That is a really important thing. And then learning that you can actually do that. You can grow. You can IPO. You can do these uh, pretty amazing things is eye-opening. As soon as you know that you can do that, the world changes for you. So that was one of the best, far and away, one of the best benefits of working there. So you saw some of the things that you were doing yep. um, at WorkBrain, but then you also saw some of the, um, like you said, some of the pitfalls. Yep. You know, if the business processes is bad, you're just accelerating yep. that. Is that how 
um, your, I guess this would be really your first startup, right? Yeah, you know, I like had your other own. companies. You know, I, I, I had a partner in university. I had this laundry company, like this laundry service company. I had a little web design company that I created of course, that when yeah, it came yeah. out. But this was my first real, like, corporate, like, well, I'm going to go build a business. And, um, and, and it really came from a lot of that, which was... A lot of it was was to really support WorkBrain and say, hey, they've got this great software, and let's go make the businesses better so that they can implement it. Because, you know, we'll be these agnostic system integrators that implement everybody, but we had a obviously a huge bias towards WorkBrain because we thought it was the best software that was out there. Sure. So what we did is we spun off, and when I say we, it was myself and, and my partner, um, who was running professional service at the time at WorkBrain, and said, let's go almost be the consigliere to these senior executives for these Fortune 1000 companies. Mm -hmm. Their largest expense is their labor costs. Let's help them figure that out, do the strategic consulting around it, and then do the vendor selection and bring, help them bring in the technology to manage it, not just tell them what they should do, but actually do the implementations with them. Right? Mm. Um, to help fix their process. Yep. And, and so we had these really long, really great relationships with huge companies. Um, we started off at two people. You know, We were 120 people really, really quickly. And this is the Axiom Group, right? Yep. Yeah, and I was 27 when we started it, and <laughs> we had all these people who are all older and smarter than me, um, and it was great. And my partner was about 10 years older than me, so I got to learn a lot as well. And sure, I focused on what I knew really well, which is the operations and the service delivery side of things. I understood the world really well, and uh, and um, it was a really fast, great ride. We kind of found this really wonderful niche. We were like the first player in the space, really building it out, and uh, there was a real need for it. So. We ended up with really great clients, amazing, amazing people, and grew quite fast. Cool. I'm, I'm going to take a step back because you yeah, said sure. something. You ran a laundry business. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this. It was actually one of the most efficient models ever. A, a gentleman called me, asked me if I wanted to help him out. It was actually his idea. Um, he pulled me in. He's been kind of the serial entrepreneur as a kid growing up. You know, there was always those kids that were serial entrepreneurs. He was just an acquaintance, a friend of a friend. And uh, it was really this beautiful model where... You know, we worked with uh, this laundry service, um, basically a laundromat that would do a 20-pound bag for $10. Um, Western had a lot of kids that had disposable income and didn't like doing laundry. So we would say, hey, here's a 20-pound 20, 20 bag. It's going to cost you $20. So we had drivers going around picking up these bags, giving them $5 per bag. Wow. And we'd walk away with $5 per bag for, for running this you know, laundry service, which was pretty amazing. So, so. smart. So I, I had it worked. I had a similar, yeah, but very different type of laundry. Thing. Oh yeah. So my dad had a dry cleaners. Yep. And so he didn't actually have a dry cleaners. He had a depot. Oh really? Um, and the and the location still exists right outside Greenwood Subway Station. Nice. Back then it was called Ken's Cleaners. Yeah. yeah. My dad's name is Celine, but everyone called him Ken. <laughs> amazing. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but he would. So obviously, you know the. It being a hub right at, at the subway station, people come before work and after work, drop off their suits and everything like that. He would then take all of that and yep. take it to uh, a proper dry cleaners slash yep. laundromat. They would do it. He'd double the he'd, – he'd mark it up. Yeah, he's, like a, he's a laundry broker. It's, an, it's exactly. amazing. Yeah, amazing model. And yep. then he figured out a way to get all the hotel businesses. Right. So he had the King Eddie, which is just down the street. Sure. He had a – uh, the Prince Hotel, which is now the Hilton yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. Um, he, had a, he had a bunch of them. Amazing. Um, and then as he retired from the business, he had one hotel left. Yeah. Uh, and that was, at the time, it was the Holiday Inn on the 401 in Warden. Sure. Just out in Scarborough, which was not too far from our house. 
and I'm in high school. And he says, Kareem, listen, I'm retired. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's extra money you can make. So I would go every morning, yeah. pick up um, the laundry. So we weren't doing staff at this hotel laundry. We were doing the guest laundry. So we'd pick it up. And all of the the underwears and the under, I'd take that home. Yeah. I'd wash all of that, fold it nicely. And then I would I found the dry cleaners. So I, I became now the, the laundry broker. It's amazing. And, and went yeah. to a dry cleaners. He did all the cleaning, put all the shirts on hangers or perfect. folded them or pants. Yeah. $2,000 a month. It's amazing. Yeah. You know? It's, it's a perfect. There are those models in the yeah. world that are like perfect models. You know, the the difference in technology, and this is my world, is those guys, the middlemen that, that we are, the middle people, yeah. those go away pretty quickly yeah. in this new world. But when it works, that's an, it's an amazing model. I mean, as a yeah. kid, in unit, here was my attitude. I was the laziest guy in the world, but here was a... I just had to put myself in the way of laundry and money. Lazy people make very good entrepreneurs. Yeah. Very good. They're, you can call them lazy. They're really efficient people. They're looking for efficiency, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the way it works. And they find the best ways to do things. There you go. But you're you're the first guy I've met who in the laundry business. business. It's good good models. Good models win. There you go. So Axiom grows. Mm -hmm. Um,. How long you you sold it then? Right after a while, how many years? We sold it after about three and a half years. That's that's um, quick. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think it was so quick at the time. It felt like a really long time. Like forever. In hindsight, it looks uh, there's it's a lot of work. We worked with some huge, huge companies and did some really amazing things. Did and, you want to sell it? Um, we reached an inflection point where we had to really figure out what was next. Um, okay. We you know when you're growing a services company, it's a wonderful business because you're almost profitable from day one. Right? There were two of us on day one, and there you go. we build ourselves out to our first company customers were Citigroup and Fidelity. We build ourselves out. Amazing business because we had these amazing margins on the business, and we were profitable from day one. When you're growing a services business, revenue goes up, but your operating costs go up along with At the, the same time, And yeah. we were very, very efficient because you know, my background is product, so I like working and productizing things. So we really productized our services and almost had these like software-enabled services. We were a services company. We got really, really efficient in how we delivered those services. So our margins were great. However, you're still almost always tied to these projects. Yeah. Um, and we need to really think, like, what was next? Where were we going to take on investment and really grow things out? We started getting a lot of acquisition offers on the company. We were profit on 50, like, several years in a row. We had a really great reputation. We had world-class brands. We were building a world-class organization out of Toronto, so it wasn't necessarily... 99% of our business was outside of Canada. Hmm. Um, and uh, it just so happened I was judging a business competition with a gentleman named uh, David Shaw who ran uh, Pepsi Canada and was a Pepsi executive all over the world. Wow. And he ended up starting his own human capital management consulting firm here in Canada. Yeah. And uh, I really liked the guy. I ended up talking to him after and saying, hey, like um, – you have this great human capital management. You focus on recruiting, developing people, and the career transition piece of it. We're people operations. We can be great partners, but just so you know, we have all these offers on the table. Is it something that's interesting to you? And uh, and literally like four months later, the deal was done. It was quick. And uh, we had a really great relationship after we were acquired. It just seemed, it felt like the right thing. We retained our brand. We retained all of our people. We didn't do any layoffs. We did things the way that we want to, but we just had the power and the resources of... Mm-hmm. 
a larger company to help us out. And it was one of those things where acquisitions don't generally don't work, um, but it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm very grateful to David. David was a, was a wonderful guy. Nice. And you were able to like, like travel the world with that, right? Yeah, I've spent most of the last 15 years um, all over. So all over the U.S. Beautiful. Like I lived in New York for a long time. I lived mm-hmm. in like places like Miami and all. But I also lived in like rural, rural, rural Alabama and like lots of different uh, places that might not be considered glamorous. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Asia. I lived, I lived all over the place. Um, and because of that, David was um, looking at how he grows the Knightsbridge brand. Uh, we are all primarily North American based companies, his and our company. Um, and he asked me to start international operations for his business, mm-hmm. Knightsbridge and Axiom, the Axiom brand. Uh, overseas. Yeah. And that was just another great opportunity for me to build another business that was really still mine. Yeah. But not mine because yeah. I, I kind of call it one and a half. Um, sure. And actually, was a great way to practice and learn and get, you know, my mentality changed a lot over the. Like the thinking four globally years. now, eh? Yeah. I, you know, I was always thinking globally. And, yeah. and, and this is a whole thing that we as Canadians don't do very well, but I was always planning on being a global company, even when I was back at Axiom. Um, but. All of a sudden, we moved overseas, and my wife and I got married in, like, May 3rd of 2009. All of 2008, after our deal, I was going back and forth yeah. almost every uh, every other week. And then 2009, my wife and I got married, and three weeks later, we were both on a plane, and, like, we moved over, over to season. We decided to set up shop in London, but we walked out there and didn't know any candidates, didn't know, like, for employees, didn't know any mm-hmm. prospects. They got hit really hard on the recession. We got hit. We got hit hard too. But sure. over in in the UK, they were really hit I hard. Remember, yeah. And uh, and said, all right, let's go set up shop again. And see see what we can do. And within about eighteen months, we had operations in UK and in continental Europe and Middle East and Australia and mm-hmm. Asia and built another really great practice. That there were some wonderful people. So it was a good opportunity for us. Did you start to get the itch of of starting your own thing again? Um. I did. I, I always knew I was going to do something. Yeah. Um, this was a really great intermediary because uh, I was building something out there again. Sure. So I didn't have the itch of, oh, I need to build something totally new. But, you know, I got to a point, you know, I was now, after three years at Knightsbridge and four years at, uh, at Axiom and two years at, uh, at, uh, at WorkBrain, I knew that world really, really well. Um, you know, I... I remember being one time I was on a train and there was this retreat for like 70 of like the top HR execs in, uh, in the UK. And it's like this private retreat and they asked me to come speak. And I'm really meticulous about how I present and what I present and prep. Uh, mm-hmm. Even when I pretend that I don't prep, I, I really I, <laughs> I prep a lot. Um, but uh, I remember doing the presentation on the train ride up and I remember totally winging it when I was there. And I did just a masterful job and it was one of my best presentations ever and it was an hour yeah ad-libbing um and just like literally improving the entire thing and and i knew it but i didn't prep for it and i remember getting on the train on the way back and calling my wife and saying i'm out i'm done like if i can do that and it wasn't a challenge anymore yeah i just I, it was like groundhog day a little bit That's and i knew at some point I, I would uh i would get back and it was very soon after that that i decided that well, I knew then that I would be moving on. It was just making the plan and figuring out what would be best. And is that is that? And did you move right back to Toronto? Or you guys just stayed in London? No, you know, I worked there. I, I was out there for almost four years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like th- sorry, uh, 
three and a bit years, and plus the year going back and, and, and forth. Um, it was a big decision. You know, I wanted to get back to product and build a really big company. Um, and where we were going to do that was going to be an interesting decision. You know, I love London. I could have stayed there. For, like, Toronto's in my heart. Toronto, I am a hardcore Toronto fanatic through and through. Like, full stop. It's hard to, to say anything else about that. But I love London. Of all the places that I've lived, London feels like home. If it wasn't for, like, my family, who I love, and and kind of my, my anchor to Toronto and just, like, the lifestyle here, mm-hmm. London would be a very – so we could have stayed in London. I have a great network down in the Valley. Could have moved down to the Valley if we were starting a startup. Yeah. Lived in New York. Love New York. Good technology startup scene there, too. My wife is Israeli. Could have moved to Tel Aviv and have family there. Tons of startups there, eh? Tons. An amazing, amazing culture, too, for well, startups. So li- yeah. wh- why? Sorry, I d- don't mean to interrupt, but, yeah. like, why – why is Israel yeah. like huge start like per capita? It's like that tiny slice of land. Yeah, just builds you know these huge startups. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing, and I've actually really studied it and looked at that ecosystem, and they have a lot of really great ingredients. But that one ingredient, more than anything, is the one I was just talking about a little bit earlier with with David, just that mentality, like, yeah, we can do it. Like, of course we're going to do it, right? And that, hmm. that's a little bit of the Israeli mentality, which is, yeah, of, of course. Like, what do you mean? Like, why are you, like, why are you even asking me type of thing? Um, they have all the great ingredients. They've got, you know, a government and infrastructure that really believes in it and supports it and doesn't do things for them, but actually enables the leaders to be able to do things for them. They've got a very vibrant VC culture out there. Um, hmm. So there's lots of capital. They've got a great reputation. Um, and it's a cool thing. It was always a cool thing to be kind of the, in the technology world in Israel. And they also have a lot of really great people that come from really amazing units in the Israeli army that, you know, mm. from very young people are focused on intelligence or data or, you know, what they're really amazing at is, is not just creating great innovative things and, and innovation, is pulling pieces together from different innovations and making something out of it. And that's a very Israeli mentality too. So interesting. They have some really great ingredients that you start to see pieces of that in different ecosystems, but there seems to work really well. And they're a little bit more mature just in terms of the timeline. That was cool to do about ten years before it was cool to do here in Canada. So yeah. fifteen years. It was always part of the culture. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing when I hear like Waze is from Yeah, like you can name dozens you could probably there's probably hundreds more that you can't name that were huge exits and like massive like even i was joking about icq earlier on like icq was a massive oh yeah company right. based out of israel so you get that a lot which is like oh yeah of course they're like <laughs> so I, I hope at one point that that's what happens here in, in canada is like nobody realizes that these are all canadian companies and, and it's cool that that's happening in israel so why did you choose to come back so besides family yep uh, besides home um you know why yeah, as someone who has traveled the world and seen different places and different cultures um, that you could build a startup and grow a startup and become successful, um, why did you choose Toronto and why do you choose to stay here? Yeah, it's a great question and it's not one I took lightly at all. Um, I, f- I vehemently believe that Toronto is the best place in the entire planet to create a technology company because for many reasons yeah but again full stop like that that is that is the idea if i look at the other technology startup 
scenes, you know, Boston or Austin, Texas, New York, you know, Valley, all these amazing places. Um, Toronto has some very unique things when you're starting, right? There are different phases of companies. Okay. And different places are good for those different phases. But that initial, hey, I've got an idea and I want to do something. I want to build something. Toronto has a few of those key ingredients. And for me, the most important thing always is talent and people. And when you're thinking about Toronto, you know, we graduate more people, especially in the, kind of in the STEM world. There are about yeah. 30,000, you know, engineers that are graduating in the Ontario universities for a very small amount of scaling companies that are here versus all of California graduates 26,000 only, hmm. right? So think about the amount of talent, that, the amount of companies that are, that are trying, you know, ripping for that talent down in, the, in, uh, in California. So just the vastness and the depth of our pound pool. It may not be as deep as obviously Silicon Valley for sure, but the first 50 people I can get here, I will put up against any 50 in the world. So mm -hmm. that, that was step number one. When you're thinking about starting a company, okay. that has to be the most important place. I have good networks here, good talent here, was able to pull those pieces together. More than I would do if I was like some strange Canadian you know, company mm -hmm. in the Valley. I think it's deeper and better talent pool than in New York, uh, that I would have had in New York. Tel Aviv, definitely like really, really deep talent pool in there much smaller talent pool and a little bit more competitive. And again, I'm the strange Canadian guy that's over there. Yeah. London didn't have the maturity of an ecosystem at the time that Toronto did. Toronto was significantly better than London. So this was the place for me for the talent piece of it. And then things like operating costs, sure. Like obviously our, our dollar goes much further. It's much easier to retain people and mm -hmm. it's much cheaper. That's great, which when you're an early stage startup, you're just looking for a runway. Yeah. Less burn means I've got longer time to figure this thing out. Um, and then, like, just from a sales perspective, I can sell into executives in the Canadian subsidiaries of these huge U.S. companies and then leapfrog down to the U.S. And I bypass all of that sales process that most of my competitors in the U.S. are trying to work their way up the ladder. So there's lots of amazing reasons why to be in Toronto. Mm -hmm. You need to be a global company. As we get bigger, we will absolutely need a presence, and we're launching new locations outside of Canada, but we will always be a Canadian company because even with all the other stuff, it was really important for me to be a Canadian technology company. So an institutional, big global company based in Canada because we just don't have a lot of them anymore. No, we don't. And Toronto, which is the epicenter for you know the financial world or like all of Canada, we don't have multi-billion dollar tech companies here, which blows my mind. And, and I want to come back here and do that as separate from the fact that this was good. So that nice. was a big reason. So let's, let's, let's take a little step in a different direction because mm -hmm. um, I want to get to Hubba and what you guys are doing there. But you've also spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, I would say, in community involvement mm -hmm. uh, in, in, the, in the startup tech scene here. Um, and, and one that I, I sort of became aware of uh, the last time you and I crossed paths with is, is a, an organization called the Upside Foundation uh, of Canada, which you got involved in, I believe, prior to launching Hubba. Yeah. Is that correct? Just w right when we launched Hubba and okay. prior to them launching before okay, so Upside was launched. Right at the start yeah. of both things. So, yeah. so let me ask you, so what, what is, for those who don't know, sure. and also to, for me to better understand, 
What is the Upside Foundation? Yeah, the, the Upside Foundation is an organization that basically allows us as startups to donate a portion of our equity to charity. Mm -hmm. Basically, what we do is we say, hey, Upside Foundation, we're going to pledge 1% of our startup, which at the early days is pretty much worth nothing. Yeah. So it's quite easy. Upside Foundation goes on to the cap table of our business and is a shareholder in our business so that as we grow into a multi-billion dollar company, there will always be shares that are set aside so that when we exit, either through an acquisition or through an IPO, that money, we can then decide which charities to disperse that out to. So that is literally just earmarking a portion of your equity for charity upon a liquidity event. And what was... Why did you decide to, to, to get involved in, in sort of right at the beginning stages of both Hubba and Upside? Um, I think there's lots of reasons. I think companies now are very different. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is, you know, historically I was a product guy. I, there are different types of people within an organization. I love ops. I'm, I think it's one of the things that I, I, I enjoy doing. I like the sale. Right? I'm not a sales guy, but I like the sale. I, I like having a... Uh, a marker and a whiteboard and a big kind of final exec meeting. Um, but I'm generally a product guy. Like, that is my bread and butter. Mm -hmm. My product now has become my company, right? So it's less of here are the pixels that we need to put here and this, the, the button should look like this. And it's more of how do I pull the pieces together and make the, the company run better? Part of that is the culture and the DNA of the business. And from day one, I knew there are lots of things that I wanted Hubba to be, and one of them was a philanthropic company, but not a philanthropic company as, hey, we're a not-for-profit or, mm -hmm. like, we are here to make money, but there's lots of great ways to make money and provide um, uh, great opportunities for other people while making money. And that's kind of really followed me throughout a lot of things, which is I love the community aspect and, and helping out and giving back because I do feel it's important but I'm a pretty big capitalist. Like I want to, I want to be able to give back by doing really, really well. Yeah. Um, and usually it's the other other way around. So I think you can build really great companies and use those companies as great ways of getting back into the ecosystem. Interesting. Um, because you've been with them since the beginning, I'm wondering if there's any <clears throat> any success stories at this point. I, I know success comes when there's an exit yeah. or an acquisition, but are, are there any success? There have. There's already okay. been several. So. So Upside Foundation started a couple of years ago and already has, you know, in excess, I believe, of 80 companies that have now wow. uh, pledged for 1% uh, of their equity. That number, that pool, based off the, the value of each one of the companies, is in the millions. Mm -hmm. So within our ecosystem across Canada, there are already millions earmarked for, um, for this, um, which is amazing, right? Yeah. Just to know that that piece is, is there. Um, it was a big. It was, it was actually really important uh, for us to start to cultivate some of those new generations of companies. So there are have been out of those eighty. There's actually been three exits already. Oh wow! Yeah, we didn't expect them, but they're just you know they happen every so often. You look at you play the odds. You have eighty companies. Some of them are going to get taken out pretty quickly. Yeah. Um. So we already have a lot of these uh, great success stories started. Nice. But there's a lot of really large companies that have been growing and growing and growing and growing. So. There's a big pool there that's going to be, you know, hopefully tens of millions, if not significantly more for local charities, you know, by just 
you know, startups giving back to the ecosystem. That's awesome. Yeah. You're also part of the uh, advisory board of HackerU. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's your involvement there like? So it's, um, so HackerU is um, a woman named Heather Payne who's an absolutely amazing individual. Um, I knew her because she started uh, Ladies Learning Code. Mm-hmm. So Heather had a tweet back in, I can't remember, five years ago maybe? Yeah. Literally, like, it might have been, like, the month after Hubba was incorporated. And uh, and there was just this tweet with a hashtag that said, Ladies Learning Code. And it, was, and it was talking about people, hey, can we get a bunch of women together to do a workshop where we can learn to code? And uh, she was thinking about pulling an organization together to manage it. And, I, and the fir- I remember looking at that hashtag, and just it was just this amazing ladies learning code hashtag and and reach out to a mutual friend uh a woman named brianna hughes actually and said hey brianna like can you connect me with heather and probably had minus thousands of dollars to our you know our on our balance sheet at hub at the time and and just said to heather hey whatever you're going to do whenever you're going to do it no like i will i will give you your first money so that you can get this thing off the ground uh i took about five minutes of talking to her before like maybe five minutes before I knew that she's just somebody who does things. And she's an amazing, amazing person who I I admire. What was it about that? Like, what was it about Ladies Learning Code that appealed to you? Um, Again, kind of goes back to this thing. You know, there are certain things, Upside Foundation, Ladies Learning Code, Hacker U. um, You know, we're just, we're kicking off, we're working with another uh, organization that was kicking off the the first uh, LGBT event in tech uh, in March, which is going to be this amazing conference. Oh, my. Okay. Um, so it's funny. You know, people talk about it like this altruism of, like, helping out with the community and giving back, which totally, and I love that piece of it. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's going to help me. Right? It's going to help other tech companies here in Canada to have a much better talent pool and a much more diverse talent pool. It may be diverse, much more inclusive talent pool. Mm-hmm. Um, we suck at that in tech. Just absolutely suck. Um, and I think the tech companies could get a lot better, that the actual companies themselves can become better by having a more inclusive workforce and, and other ideas. And that's what I'm trying to get, and it's going to help me significantly. So I'm glad it does a lot of good for the community. And You're building every- the community yep. that you work in, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, I'm pretty open about it, that uh, it's not just charity, which is great. Like, I, I'm happy to give my time and build the community. It is very selfish of me to do. Yeah. Um, but I'm okay with it because I think this entire community, the way that it works is to have several multi-billion dollar tech companies out of Toronto mm-hmm. in this ecosystem and things start to happen once you once you do that. The way to do that is to invest in the community and invest in other people and do all these really great things, but to build multi-billion dollar tech companies through it. Talking about diversity mm-hmm. that you mentioned, I, th- I think I saw a tweet from you recently where I think you retweeted an article or something and you actually, you put yourself out there saying, you know, we're one of those companies that needs to be better at this because uh, something to the effect of our, our management, our management team is four white. Was that you? Yeah, our executive team is four white guys. That was, that was you. Yeah. We we preach diversity all the time. It's amazing. We do preach diversity all the time. We, we, we make it a, a really important thing in our business um, and there, there's lots of, like, this is a very big topic, obviously, you know, about how you do that and doing it the right way and, and making sure that um, you're building the right culture around that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's totally hypocritical to do when you've got four white guys, you know, re- running the show there. Um, so we know that. I think that 
that the biggest issue, the first two of the biggest issues in dealing with inclusion and diversity within uh, any type of talent pool is knowing that there's an, abs an absolute problem, which mm -hmm. is, y y y I kind of, I joke and I laugh around, but most people don't realize that this is a problem, right? It, they don't realize that companies get better the more diverse they are. And the better the talent pool is, the better everybody's gonna do. Mm -hmm. So understanding that is a really important thing. And the second piece is, it's great that you understand that, but you have to want to do something about it. Yeah. So there's probably like 50 steps after that to do the right things. But if you can do those first two things, we're in a much better spot. So we need to do a lot of those things. Even at Hubba, we need to do a lot of those things. Hmm. The good news is we're very aware that there's a problem. Very, very, very aware. And we're very, very aware that we need to do things about it. And we work very hard on, on trying to do that. So it's not a cop-out because we need to get better at it. Yeah. But um, I think calling ourselves out is an important piece of it. That, that is amazing. I, I remember seeing that, you know, as I was getting prepared for this, I was going on the website. I was trying to, I was trying to, do, and this probably leads to this. I was trying to find a, a definition for, okay, what is Hubba? What does yeah. it do? You know, I've, I've had Saul Colton here and he told me, and I'm very bad at this because I, <laughs> I never listen. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm getting at? No, I, I never listen. Very rarely do I listen to these conversations after I post them up. Sure. I just I, – I can't stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> but he said that I kept on calling the company Hubble. Yes, I heard that one. Yeah. yeah. So Hubble.com. It's all right. It's so okay. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. For that. But you know, as I said, I, I, was, I was trying to research it. What, how, how can I explain to somebody, yeah. you know, what does Hubba do? Um, and and I, I remember going on that page where it was the four of you white guys, and I yeah. saw your tweet, and I go – this is weird. Yeah. This is really, really interesting. But I'm glad that you I'm glad that you've identified that, that you continue to support um, you know, whether it's ladies learning code code, like you said, um, whether it's this um LGBT um event that is gonna be happening in the springtime, uh to to build the community that you selfishly will take from. Yep. Um because you understand that that's the way you're going to make your company better is just to make sure that the community is better, which helps not just you, uh, but to be honest, it's going to help other companies for sure as well. And that's a, that's an important piece. And, and we have such and this goes back to also why Toronto, because there are certain communities and there are certain cities and countries that are so far down this path and, and so far in the wrong direction that we have hmm. such a great opportunity to be role models for everybody. Like we're, we're large enough that we're a world-class uh, world city, mm -hmm. but we're small enough that we can still have huge impact by doing small things. So we could really be the leaders in showing the world that we can have the most amazing tech pool that comes from a whole bunch of different uh, walks of life. Listen, it's not, it wasn't, everybody asked me about laser and code, do we need to get ladies in the talent pool? Yeah, of course we need to get women in the town pool. That's a really important thing. Yeah. But it's not just women. It's just any underrepresented group, which could be, you know, different socioeconomic statuses, could be people who are immigrants, could be people who come from, you know, just different ideas are what we need in this town pool. It's going to make us all better. And I think that that's, we just, we blow it all the time. And we have such a great opportunity in Toronto, which is the most diverse city in the entire world. Yeah. Right? In the entire world to be able to build uh, a role model of a society, especially in our little tech ecosystem. Mm, awesome. Yeah. I want to get to a, a question from a listener. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Faiza wants to ask, um, and she, she's asking the e-commerce question because, you know, she says, okay, you know, Hubba's in the e-commerce space. Mm -hmm. So she wants to ask, um, why is Groupon and the whole group buying thing no longer on the radar? 
you know, it was it was huge. It was popular. Like everybody yeah. was, you know, buying deals here, there, and, and yeah. everywhere. And it, it seems like I'm sure. I mean, it's still around, but it seems like it's really quieted down. It did. You know, Groupon was uh, was at one point I think the fastest company in the world to get to a billion dollars. Yeah. Right. It's it was the fastest growing company. Um, listen, we're we're seeing this like cataclysmic shift in the world of commerce of where you buy things and how you buy things Mm -hmm. that on its own, you know, we talk about technologies and all, but it really comes down to models. That's a really interesting model. That is a high customer acquisition cost model with very little lifetime value of a customer. Like at the end of the day, numbers happen, right? Interesting. But aside from that, you know, if you look at what's going on in the world of commerce, and this is one of the big trends, why I started Hubba is Retailers used to have the power. If you wanted something, you needed to go to a retailer. And then all of a sudden, you started getting this world of decentralized commerce. So you can buy things on all these different marketplaces. You can buy things on all the different search engines and Facebook, you know, messenger bots and Twitter buy buttons and, you know, your Samsung fridge that can order your food for you. Like there's an entire world of commerce that comes to you and happens. The Groupons are one of those Mm -hmm. where you can buy things that aren't at the store, like not at the store. And... They're all trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to know where that pendulum swings or who's going to own this. Or how. The good news for us, and this goes back to you know, what Hubba does, is all of them are going to need product information, right? You can't sell something and you can't have a transaction if you don't know what you're buying. Yeah. So that's where we said is, is you know what? Let everybody fight that world out. That's okay. And that's going to take many years for this world to figure out. In the meantime, we'll be the folks one level below that give them all the fuel to be able to to build those kind of commerce engines. So that's what we do is if you land on Groupon or Walmart.com and you pull up something that has a product page yeah. and you want to learn something about it, that yeah. picture, the description, the reviews, the lifestyle shots, how it's made, why, what their eco-commitment is, all of that information, there's a very good chance that that came from us. So tell me, yeah. explain how that works and, and how, how you make that work. Yeah. So what we did is we built this amazing network for brands and retailers and that kind of that whole community of commerce. And we're really focused on B2B. So we focus on connecting the companies to other companies that are going to sell things. So connecting, I'm just looking around here, I see Pioneer is, you know, turntables, uh, connecting Pioneer to Best Buy and making sure that Best Buy has all the great information about that Pioneer turntable you know, the structured data, like how big it is and the dimensions and how many come in a box and does it have the cable and doesn't have this, but also all the videos of like the DJs in Ibiza that are using Pioneer turntables and like anything that they want to say about those products mm-hmm. all go into Hubba and we're the ones who get it out to Best Buy and then we get it out to Target and then we get it out to, you know, any of the other, you know, Amazon, any of the marketplaces. So our job is to really get that data, get that product onto our platform and be able to syndicate that and get that out to the world. So the pioneers of the world will come to you and say, listen, we want to make sure we've got 10 clients, mm-hmm. clients being the best buys of the world, uh, Walmart and so on. Yep. Um, we need to make sure that they all have our information. Yep. You then have some sort of a system that connects that. Yeah, it's a little bit like a network, a social network. So basically we say, get a profile up of your product. Mm-hmm your picture, get your description, say all the things that you would want to say to a customer, for example, who's standing in the store aisle looking at your product and looking at competitors, like why your stuff is better. Go mm-hmm. put all that on a Haba. Yeah. And now, sure, it's those 10 customers, but the problem is it's not 10 anymore. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of channels. There's no way that these people can keep up. Yeah. So if you have it on Haba, 
yeah. A, you can supercharge your existing trading partners. So making sure that the Walmarts and the people that you have these relationships with already have the most up-to-date information so they can sell more of your products. More importantly, though, if your stuff is already on Haba, we have thousands and thousands of retailers and e-commerce sites and marketplaces and people who are in there every day saying, what's the latest and the greatest? Like, what other cool products are there that I should be carrying? Mm. So not only do you supercharge your existing channel partners, but you get discovered by thousands of buyers and influencers. So mom and pop's DJ shop. Exactly. Everybody that you would never be able to reach before and didn't have time to manage and wouldn't be able to do, mm-hmm. you just have them all coming incoming to you now. So you basically can have your stuff up on Haba and literally have your entire channel distribution strategy done for you. Weird. I know you talked about before, you know, other e-commerce companies are fighting in different areas yep. and you sort of say, well, we're just going to go straight up the middle yep. and make sure that everyone has the information that they need. But where did the idea come from that, that you needed to uh, ensure that product information was as complete as possible for everybody? Yeah, it was going back when I was in the UK Okay, and, um, and thinking about what I want to do next. And, and a lot of it was thinking about this world of commerce and some of these macro trends that are happening. It was, it was really funny that this is very much a reverse engineered company. So it wasn't, okay. you know, everybody says, oh, I've got this, like, massive problem. And, like, there are problems, and that's, you know, the nugget that you usually get. I have this problem I want to solve it for myself and get out, which which is a piece of it. But the real thing was looking at this world of commerce and realizing back in 2008, 2009, wow, commerce is really simple. There's a product, there's a transaction, there's fulfillment. That's it. It's, a, it's very easy. Mm-hmm. There are multi-billion dollar companies in the transaction world eBay, uh, sorry, PayPal or yeah, Stripe yeah. or credit cards or banks. There are multi-billion dollar companies in the fulfillment world, Amazon and FedEx and anybody else. Nobody owns all the product information. Hmm. So I said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Let's go be a monster commerce data company, uh, empower that entire world. They're all going to need the data. And so, okay, great. How do we do that? Right. And then started reverse engineering and said, you know what? We're going to build the richest, most comprehensive data set of product information. Awesome. How do you do that? Well, we're going to build this network that solves a problem for these brands where, you know, they need to supercharge their existing channels right now and get out this data, and they just can't do it today because it's too cumbersome and too terrible, Mm -hmm. and they need to get found. And, hey, by doing that, they're going to want to put more data on our platform, and we're going to be able to help them out in other ways. So we really found this amazing dynamic to help these brands get out to the world, especially these small craft brands, which we'll talk about. uh, I'll talk about in a second because that's this other amazing wave that's going on. And by doing so and helping them, they're going to put more and more data onto our platform. Mm-hmm. So um, it's working, which is the good thing. It took five years to build, but it's actually working, which is which is pretty cool. Well, you talk about craft brands. Talk a little bit more about that. That's been the most far and away the most fascinating piece of it. So that first kind of trend that we saw is this world of decentralized commerce where it's not about the retailer anymore. Like you're seeing Dollar Shave Club, for example, mm-hmm. become a multi-billion dollar brand or at least a billion dollar brand. Um, without ever touching the retail channel. Like, that never happened before. So you're starting to see all these companies develop that playbook. That was kind of step number one. Step number two is because we go out and we get all of these brands onto our platform, all these companies, like we have about 40,000 companies on our platform now. We we grew really, really fast, and we're doing about 1,000 companies a week now. So it's a whole different scale. When you get those companies, you go across the entire gamut of, you know, the pet industry. Well, you get Purina and you get Iams, but you also have this massive drop-off after that and a long tail that goes on forever for all these small companies. And I build companies for the big top-tier folks. 
and I didn't even pay attention to these smaller brands. And they could be $500 million brands. They're just not pure, like P&G and Unilever. Yeah. But all of a sudden, we, I started seeing all these amazing, unique, crazy, like, cool brands. And they said, hey, if I have my product information on Hubba already, like, how come I can't just get discovered by a whole bunch of other people? Like, you're only giving it to my existing trademarks. Mm -hmm. So we built our discovery network. And now all of a sudden we've leveled the playing field. So, you know, a good example is I found a company called the Bear and the Rat on Hubba. And the Bear and the Rat is, makes peanut butter, bacon, frozen yogurt for dogs. Oh, my goodness. Total, total niche play amazing. They're doing amazing right now. But they would never get into, like, a pet smart buyer because that relationship is owned by Purina. Yeah. They have an account team, people that – but all of a sudden, just by virtue of being on Hubba, that pet smart buyer, they see what's trending. They see what's cool. They see what other influencers are doing. And all of a sudden – the bear and the rat has all this amazing exposure. So we've just leveled the playing field and have now all of a sudden given the bear and the rat a better opportunity to sell into PetSmart. And that changes the ballgame for these folks. Wow. So it's a whole new dynamic. And you can imagine being the PetSmart buyer. I knew the five or ten brands in my category. But now Hubba can show me a thousand amazing brands I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Eco-friendly, gluten-free, organic, whatever it is, dog food. And not just tell, show me the thousand, but tell me the ten that I would probably care most about. Yeah. Total game changer. That is really, really interesting. Mm. And then you end up writing a book. Yeah, well, this it Rise kind of inspired of me for that. Yeah. You know, I, I love building big companies. Like, that's really what I came back here to do is build a big company. That was the reason why I got out of bed every morning. And I have to say, and it sounds kind of cheesy, but this whole idea for these craft brands where we could literally change the trajectory of their entire life and their entire company because you're this organic cotton toy company in Australia and you're huge in Australia, but you go on to Hubba and all of a sudden... You know, a European distributor picks you up and now you're global, changes the entire business. We do that thousands of times a week now. Mm. And that should be thousands of times a day. But we made a huge difference. And all of a sudden, you know, people waking up at Hubba to be able to change the lives of some of those brands, that's a huge deal. That's so amazing. it's uh so that's where the book came from, is actually seeing some of these trends. Mm -hmm. Primarily that these craft brands, you know, if you think about the world of startups, there's about three startups that launch every second now. I can imagine, yeah. It's insane. And the reason is it used to cost $5 million to do, and now it's about $5,000 because of things like Amazon Web Services and cloud cloud computing. Same thing happening in the world of brands. You don't have to build manufacturing facilities anymore to launch a brand. You don't need your inventory and warehouse. You don't no. need any of these things. You can literally create a brand by co-manufacturing, by doing on-demand production, doing drop shipping. You can do it literally with a MacBook in your basement, and now all of a sudden you're seeing this massive proliferation of brands. Mm-hmm. And we're helping drive that. And that becomes a really cool thing. So that's what the, the book was about, was A, identifying that huge trend and saying, hey, there's probably 10 million brands out there today that are these product brands. And that's probably going to 20 million in just a couple of years. Let's go and see what makes them special and what makes them unique. And let's go talk about that new movement. And it's a really cool movement. Really neat. Um, I want to stay on this this thought of, of, of small companies, but I want to focus it on Canada. Sure. Um, are there, you know, whether they're tech or, or, or otherwise, are there um, some Canadian brands, companies that you've seen that really excite you that you're, you either believe, hope, or wish that they're going to be really, really big someday? Uh, yeah, there's lots. Um, a, on the brand side, the companies that we work with, you know, like every day I'm seeing dozens of these which is really cool it's one of the really amazing parts of the business is seeing like these amazing brands that kick off just a couple weeks ago there was a company in toronto called nunik 
which is children's clothing. Okay. Um, and they do this thing called upcycling. And upcycling basically is they go to all these amazing companies, these, these clothes manufacturers. They take all the excess material, and then they create these really cool, you know, ba- like kids and toddler and baby clothes out of this excess material. So interesting. It was all destined for, like, a dump. Yeah. And now they make these really high-end, really great clothes. <laughs> um, and they literally just launched a few weeks ago. And a really amazing company, great story, same type of thing, that like really cool community dealing with like moms and families is a very uh, impactful thing. Um, so companies like that, I love seeing. There was a company just two nights ago, I came across just on Facebook. A friend of a friend was, was saying something. Um, and, uh, and it's a company called Moonlight. And she does these amazing stories on an app and has this little plug-in uh, on the flashlight on her phone that projects part of the story up on the wall. Um, and this this really, really great neat. thing to read with your kids, but it's just one of these things you see, you're like, oh, what a great idea. Like, how do we get... She's a really amazing secret here in Toronto. It hasn't even started. It's kind of a Kickstarter... Pro- uh, I'm not sure if it's Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I have to check, but, you know, she's a secret here. How do we break her secret out to the world so that we can get her in front of thousands of other retailers and actually kind of change the trajectory of that company? Yeah. So those are the things that I really love on that side. On the other side is there's some amazing startups here. And Toronto has some really great, this interesting pyramid where there's some bigger companies that are happening now. And then a massive base of like smaller companies. Like it's a really weird pyramid. Um, hmm. We're at the point now where there's about 10 or 15 of these companies that are really ready to scale. And they could all be multi-billion dollar companies. Mm. And those are the companies that I really want to see succeed here. And people say, like, isn't that your competition? You know, it's uh, getting from the talent pool. It's not. It's here, especially in Toronto, we need to really think about rising tide. Yeah. So I want to see 10 of those companies, that, you know, exceed, you know, into IPO, make become multi-billion dollar companies. And I don't think about them as competition. I think about them more as colleagues and I don't care, you know, how people put me against them. I care about building a global company. They're not my competition. I care about building a massive global company. So do they. Let's all do it together. So yeah. I want to see all of my friends succeed here, which is which is pretty cool. Which also doesn't happen in every ecosystem, right? Where people are very competitive. Here, we're all pretty good about helping each other out and helping build big companies. Really neat. Um, what's next for you? What's next for Ben? What's next for Hubba? Yeah, we you know we we've kind of hit that inflection point, which is great. Um, so we took a very different approach to building our network. You know, there were like the Facebooks of the world that, you know, let's go to Harvard and get everybody at Harvard, spin that up really quickly, and then go get everybody at Yale and spin that up quickly, and then Stanford and spin that. And that's how that network grows. In our world of commerce, we needed to be very broad. Mm. See, we're not doing these little tornadoes. We're kind of making this massive hurricane, yeah. which is going to be more powerful, but it's going to take a lot longer. So it's taking about five years, and it's only really in the last about 16 weeks that this thing has really started taking off. So if mm. we take our hands off of the off of the controls, this thing is just spinning on its own. And uh, it's time for us to start to scale. Um, so again, we have 40,000 companies on our platform that are all dependent on, on us, which is amazing. We run on like 40 people out of this Toronto. It's in about 140 different countries around the world. People are using it in. That's awesome. It's amazing. Now it's time to take things to a whole other level, and uh, and uh, and hopefully you'll hear some announcements soon that uh, that uh, we're ready to to take things up a notch. Perfect. Yeah. I really appreciate you spending time with me. No worries. Thanks for hanging out and, and listening it, to me ramble for. Yeah, and it's Hubba. It is Hubba. No, yeah. No. It's it's probably the easiest company to ever understand, which is why we got that domain. And nobody forgets it. 
but I'm glad it's now left a proper branding impression on you. So perfect. Awesome. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.